The first thing I should say is that Hilton Kramer had nothing to do with the art on the walls. <laughs> I'm Roger Kimball, the uh, editor and publisher of the new Criterion. And on behalf of myself and my colleagues at the magazine, I'd like to welcome you here tonight for this memorial gathering. It's not a service, it's a memorial gathering for our friend Hilton. Over the years, I accompanied Hilton on many events such as this one tonight. On such occasions, Hilton often ruefully quoted his culture hero, Henry James. After the age of 50, James said, someone dies every day. When I was in my 30s and I heard this, I would just nod with the blissful semi-comprehension that is the usual dispensation of youth about such matters. But as the years have zipped by, and my, how they have zipped, I have come to a much deeper and more intimate understanding of what James and Hilton quoting James intended. I think it is worth acknowledging, however, that despite his invocation of Henry James, Hilton's presiding attitude toward gatherings such as this was equivocal. He liked the speeches short, the sentiments tidy, the spirit convivial, and the refreshments, especially the liquid refreshments, abundant. We aspire to live up to those desiderata tonight. Our formal farewell to Hilton can be found in the May issue of the New Criterion, which features both a selection of Hilton's writings and numerous recollections by his friends and colleagues. I'm sure that many of you have already seen it, but I hope we've brought enough copies for you all to take another with you if you so wish. For tonight, I've asked two of Hilton's closest friends, James Pearson and Grace Glick, to share a few recollections with us. For my part, beyond acknowledging the critically important role that Hilton had in my own career and indeed in my life, I want to be sure to offset the somberness of this occasion by recalling Hilton the raconteur, Hilton the master of repartee, the gentle and sometimes not so gentle deflator of pompous windbags and pretentious partisans of politicized pap. <laughs> One story that Hilton was fond of recalling, many of you probably noted I've written about it myself, involved the actor and movie director, Woody Allen. This was back when Hilton was the uh, chief art critic for our former paper of record just down the street there. Hilton and Allen were uh, at a dinner at the Whitney Museum of American Art. 
The dining room at the museum then was in the basement, below grade, like much of the art in the Whitney. <laughs> and it was so situated that passers-by could easily see in and espy the proceedings. Well, when Alan discovered that he was seated in such a way that people could see him from the street, he insisted that he be moved lest his adoring throng of fans uh, uh, look at him. So, so it was that the pretty girl who was seated next to Hilton was exchanged for the morose mug of the pedophilic comic. <laughs> a, a certain frostiness, a certain frostiness was in evidence from the beginning, but things took a decided turn for the worse when Alan roused himself and asked Hilton, tell me, Mr. Kramer, do you ever feel embarrassed when you meet socially the artists who you've criticized severely? Without missing a beat, Hilton replied, no, why should I feel embarrassed? They made the crappy art. I just described it. Alan turned away and no more was said between them that evening, apparently. Now, there were, there were two things to note about Hilton's response. One, of course, was the wit. He instantly formulated the perfect and unanswerable response to the question. But the second thing is the innocence of this response, because it was only when Hilton was in a taxi cab going home from the evening that he remembered that one of his few forays into movie criticism at the Times was reviewing a piece of left-wing agitprop about the Hollywood blacklist called The Front, in which Woody Allen acted, and Woody Allen did not forget that, I think we can be sure. So that's to say that uh, this was, in, the, in his frank and uncalculating expression of the truth, we have here, I think, a piece of vintage Kramer. Just one or two more things. Many people, I've discovered, wonder where Hilton got his moderately uncommon first name. The loathsome Gore Vidal liked to refer to Hilton as the Tel Aviv Hilton, <laughs> thus simultaneously revealing his anti-Semitism as well as his malign fatuousness. In fact, Hilton owes his name to Miss Hilton, a grade school teacher in Gloucester, Massachusetts, where Hilton grew up. When one of his elder brothers was sick, quite sick, seriously sick for months, Miss Hilton would come daily to tutor him, free of charge. I'm not sure this would be allowed by the teachers' unions today, but she did for day after day, month after month. And uh, in the event, Hilton's brother got better. Uh, he didn't have to repeat the year at school. And Hilton's parents, when Hilton was born, named the newest Kramer Hilton. Now, I have no doubt that the spirit of, of uh, Miss Hilton uh, lived on in Hilton himself. And I like to think that a bit of Miss Hilton and of Hilton Kramer, too, somehow persists in young James Hilton Kimball, who is with us tonight. Hello, James. It is not true. It is not true. It, 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 it is not true, as one of our friends believed, that we named you after the author of Goodbye, Mr. Chips. <laughs> all, all will be judged. All will be judged. Hilton loved that line from Auden's poem about visiting the grave of Henry James. 
He had even considered using it as a title for one of his books. All will be judged. Let me end by quoting a few lines from that poem by W.H. Auden. With what an innocence your hand submitted to those formal rules that help a child play, while your heart, fastidious as a delicate nun, remained true to the rare noblesse of your lucid gift, and for its love ignored the resentful muttering mass whose ruminant hatred of all that cannot be simplified or stolen is yet at large. No death can assuage its lust to vilify the landscape of distinction and see the heart of the personal brought to a systolic standstill, the tall to diminished dust. Preserve me, master, from its vague incitement. Yours be the disciplinary image that holds me back from agreeable wrong and the clutch of eddying muddle, lest proportion shed the alpine chill of her shrugging editorial shoulder on my loose impromptu song. All will be judged, master of nuance and scruple. Pray for me and for all writers, living and dead. Thank you. I'd like to uh, invite my friend and Hilton's friend, Jim Pearson, to say a few words. Thank you, Roger. Thanks to all for coming uh, tonight to pay tribute to our, our late friend, Hilton Kramer. I'm not sure Hilton would approve of these proceedings, uh, but he certainly deserves it. It does not seem that long ago when I first met Hilton Kramer, along with his somewhat mismatched friend, Samuel Lippmann, as they set up shop to launch the new criterion. It was, in fact, more than three decades ago. 1981 to be precise. Hilton was then at the peak of his career, indeed at the peak of his powers, having just departed from the New York Times as his chief art critic to edit the new criterion. His reputation preceded him. He was known as the severe and austere critic of everything that was innovative and experimental in art. In short, he was not a man to be trifled with. But as I came to learn, he was a gentleman of the old school, a man of wit and humor, and when not in the presence of bad art, or worse, politicized art, a person of overall good cheer. Hilton's reputation as crafted by his critics was something of a caricature. He did not reject any piece of art because it was new, contemporary, or experimental, but only because it was bad art, according to the standards that he upheld. There were many contemporary artists whose work Hilton praised in the pages of the New Criterion, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Observer, or in commentary. He had the highest praise for the leadership of Philippe de Montebello at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He praised the exhibitions at the Cleveland Museum of Art. He called the Museum of Modern Art the Louvre of Modern Art. It is true that Hilton was a severe critic but he also searched out artists 
and curators whose work he could hold up as valuable and exemplary. Hilton's gift as a critic must have been due in part to his acute sense of the absurd and his, uh, and his way of uncovering human folly in every circumstance. Hilton's great essay, The Revenge of the Philistines, and his essay, The Age of the Avant-Garde, published in Commentary, depicted the tragic comic avenues by which the avant-garde came to be embraced by the bourgeoisie to the financial benefit of the former. Perhaps a development that might have been turned into the art world's version of the producers. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if Hilton would have laughed or cringed at the news today that Andy Warhol's painting of Elvis Presley as a gunslinger might fetch as much as $50 million at auction. He probably would have done both. Hilton deployed his barbed wit in many directions and toward many objects. He was especially acute in his political observations. As I recall from one conversation some years ago during one of our stock market frenzies, uh, while I was confused about the political fallout from it, Hilton set me straight. The American people, he said, face a daunting dilemma, whether to be ruled by the liberals or by the rich. We laughed at that, mainly because we felt it was largely true. <clears throat> Yet it was Hilton's fate to stand as a critic against the trends and popular judgments of his time. It was not a role he probably ever sought or wanted. Then again, Hilton was incapable of kidding himself about art or about any other subject for that matter. He was at bottom a traditionalist, judging art and literature by enduring standards of beauty and form rather than by what happens to be popular, commercially successful, or aligned with approved political movements. He quite naturally recoiled against the concept of art as a venue for uh, pranks or as an instrument for political liberation or of the art museum as a community center to be judged according to the number of people who pass through its turnstiles. Naturally, too, he was attacked as an elitist or as a foe of democracy and the arts criticisms which are generally valid. But Hilton was capable of skewering erstwhile friends as well as long-term foes, as when he took issue with Edward Banfield when he proposed that museums sell off their original pieces of art and replace them with reproductions. And when he similarly criticized Tom Wolfe's book on modern architecture, From Bauhaus to Our House, uh, on many grounds. Of course, Mr. Wolf had earlier had some fun at Hilton's expense when Hilton wrote in the New York Times that realism lacked a theory. And Mr. Wolf then used that as a theme in his, in his uh, book, The Painted Word. That was somewhat strange of Hilton to have written that, and I have not looked up the context in which he did say that because, of course, Hilton disdained theory uh, and uh, academic pretensions in all writings about art. The past three decades have passed almost seamlessly and all too quickly. The new criterion still thrives. Congratulations to Roger and his staff on that. But the issues the magazine was founded to address are still with us. 
relentlessly so. And it still addresses those questions month by month, just as Hilton wanted it to do. Much is thus still with us, but Hilton is not. And his death seems a punctuation point or an asterisk in the passing of the years. He represented an era that is passing, sadly. And his was a voice that cannot be replaced. He was our friend and our guide, and we will miss him. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Um, I'm delighted also that we have Grace Glick, one of Hilton's oldest colleagues from that paper I mentioned down the street. Uh, she and Hilton shared uh, many battle stories, and um, uh, I wish Grace could, could uh, tell us some of the uh, racier ones, but she probably won't. But uh, I'm, I'm very happy that Grace is here to say a few words. I know that she's here someplace. Grace? Ah, there you are. Since we've heard so many classic stories about Hilton, and he was a personage from whom classic stories. Oh, shall I start over? Yes. All right. Is this good? Testing? Yeah. Okay. Well, since we we heard so many classic stories about Hilton, and he was a personage from whom classic stories naturally sprang, I thought I'd release a few factoids not generally known about him. Here goes. If you're one of those who fancied him as an egghead child plunging into Henry James at the age of five, forget it. His favorite, indeed his sole reading up to the age of 13, was comic books. And I had this straight from the horse's mouth. <laughs> to those of you who thought he spent virtually all of his time worshiping at the altar of high art, I can authoritatively tell you that one of his favorite movies was Some Like It Hot. And, and he would often quote with glee the classic ending line of the film, delivered by Joe E. Brown, on finding that the woman he yearned for was a guy in drag. Nobody's, nobody's perfect. <laughs> to those among you who felt that he only enjoyed the talk and company of intense intellectuals, I must convey that he also had a soft spot in his head for what you might call home-cooked characters, oddballs with no intellectual pretensions, whose eccentricity consisted mainly of being themselves. And for those of you who saw him as somewhat disdainful of material possessions, I can disclose that he had a penchant for elegant writing pens with which to produce his minuscule penmanship and was not above wrenching one from your hand if he coveted it. <laughs> Now back to Henry James, who I believe coined the Jamesism. A writer is someone on whom nothing is lost. He might have been speaking of Hilton, for whom everything was grist, from the spiritual sensual pleasures of looking at art to hearing juicy art world gossip, from the foibles of his friends and enemies to the moral character of those in high office, from shifts in the weather to the changes of expression on a person's face. 
In fact, in the marvelous photograph of him by Peter Aaron on the back cover of the current new Criterion, you can see Hilton gristing away. There he sits on the qui-vive as usual and wearing a mischievous half-smile. He glances sidelong at the world, ready to be entertained or enraged by its follies, while at the same time he is gauging the emotional temperature of his immediate surroundings. The photo is so hilted that it haunts me, and I plan to keep it on my desk so it can keep on doing so. That's all, folks. <laughs> Eat, drink, and be merry. Thank you for coming.